It is good to be back home again. I feel like I've traveled a lot. I've actually done a lot of my traveling in the first half of the year, so which is good for me. Thank you for your prayers while I was in the United States. Somebody asked me earlier on, did you have any jet lag since you came home? Well, I haven't had any jet lag. The reason for that is because last Saturday night, the day before I came home, I slept for 15 minutes. And then I was preaching twice. So I had 15 minutes sleep on Saturday night, got up, preached twice. And then I sort of fell asleep for like a day. So I just sort of reset myself, which was good. And so thank you for your prayers. I had a wonderful time of just being sharpened, I think, in the Lord. And so it was so good to be there. And it's good to be back. And let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 20. John Calvin once said, We owe to Scripture the same reverence that we owe to God. And so we do. When we gather around God's Word on a Sunday morning, or even during the week, we don't just gather around some book that like we just have ten of and they're just gathered around the house. We're being addressed by God. And so when we open His Word, it is the holiest moment of our lives and our service because God is Himself addressing us. And when we come to the law, we come to a particularly important part in God's Word. Psalm 119 verse 7 tells us, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. The psalmist understood just how incredible the law really is. And so he began to love it, just like the psalmist in chapter 19, verse 97, says the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. And that's my prayer this morning, that as God addresses us from his word, that our souls would be revived that we would understand just how incredible this law is. And so we're going to be examining today the first two commandments. If you're making notes and you like titles, I've called this one God and God alone. And let's read chapter 20, verses 1 through 6. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out to the land of Egypt, Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. Lord, your word is alive and active, and it is alive and active because you still speak to us through it today. Lord, I do pray then over the next 40 minutes that as we gather around your word, we would hear your voice. Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you open our eyes to behold the glories of the Lord? Would you open our eyes to behold the glories and wonders of this word? Lord, speak to us. Help us. Revive our hearts. Would we love your law? 
In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the great themes by a long way, I think, in the book of Exodus is the gracious and kind provision of the Lord. It's been going on all the way through from chapter 1. It's just over and over again, the gracious and kind provision of the Lord. For 400 years, the Israelites are in slavery in Egypt. For 400 years, they're in bondage and chains. There's nothing they can do about it. They start crying out to God, such as their hardship and their difficulty. And God hears their cry and sees their pain and understands what they're going through. So in His grace and for His glory, He saves them. He bears them on eagles' wings and brings them to Himself. He sends the plagues. He parts the Red Sea. He saves them on eagles' wings and brings them to Himself. Israel are now free. At last, they're completely free. They are a saved and a redeemed people. And it's all the gift of God's grace to them. And for the last three months, they've been wandering around the wilderness. And God has provided for them again and again and again, even though they have moaned and complained again and again and again. So they don't have any water to drink. God provides them with water. They don't have any food to eat. God provides them with food to eat. They don't have any water again. You think, I've seen this movie before. I know that this works out. They don't get it. They start grumbling and moaning. But God, full of grace and mercy, again provides for them water. They're not quite sure where to go, so God provides guidance for them. Who's going to lead them? God provides Moses, and God provides Jethro for Moses, so he understands how to disseminate leadership to such a big group of people. Over and over again, God provides for them. And now as we get to chapter 20 and we start to examine the law, we must understand his provision simply carries on. His gracious and kind provision. These are a people he loves. They're his children. It's like walking into a home where they have adopted two children who have had a difficult and sad life, and then the father sits with them and says, Hey, listen, I love you. I've saved you. Now I want to teach you how it's going to go well for you. And that's what the law is. As Riley, I think, did an excellent job last week helping us see that the law is a gracious path to life. God's provision has carried on in the way he's caring for his children, caring for his people. His gracious provision has carried on. Alec Motya says it this way. He says, The people were given the law not in order that they might become the redeemed. Rather, it was because they had already been redeemed that they were given the law. For it was the God of salvation who imposed his law on his people. The grace that saves preceded the law that demands. So it does. God didn't rock on up in Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush and say, Moses, this is good. Go speak to my people. Here's the Ten Commandments. See how they go. If they do it, I'll save them. No, he saves them. He gloriously and wonderfully saves them by his grace. He continues to provide for them all the way through the wilderness. And then we get to Mount Sinai and he gives them the Ten Commandments because he wants to continue to care for them. It's the gracious provision of the Lord. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, There is a divine order here in the prologue that creates the environment of grace for all that follows in the giving of the law. So it does. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, Israel. I want you to remember who you are and who I am. 
I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And now as my children, I want to teach you how to live, not only for my glory, but moreover for your good. This is how it's going to go well for you. That's why we need to be listening in. That's why we need to be leaning in. God, if you really love him and trust him, is addressing you. And this is profoundly personal. You and and I and, and you and I. God is addressing you, seeking to help you. Seeking to help me. And this morning then, as we begin then to put our feet onto this gracious path of life, and as we begin to unpack the first two commandments, the one thing that I want us to learn this morning is simply this. That if we are going to walk in the good of this gracious path of life, then we are to worship God and God alone. That's in a nutshell what the first two commandments teach us. That if we want to walk in the good of this gracious path of life that he's given us as his children, then we are to worship God and God alone. He needs to be first in our hearts. He needs to be the main thing in our lives. He needs to be the one thing we desire. If we are seriously going to set our feet on this gracious path of life, then first and foremost, we must understand our hearts need to be His and His alone. That He would be the apple of our eye. And that is the life-changing and heart-reviving effect that the first two commandments can have on our lives as God addresses us and addresses you individually, helping you see, I've saved you, now I want your heart. If this is going to go well for you on this path of life, that's where it begins. We worship God and God alone. So I have three points this morning. Three points that I learned from Kevin DeYoung's book, The Ten Commandments, a wonderful small book. There's like a mini commentary just on the Ten Commandments. And three points that I think will help us unpack this great reality, that we are to worship God and God alone. And three points that in turn, that I think will help us glean from these first two commandments, what it really looks like if we're going to set forth on this gracious path of life and worship God and God alone. What does that mean? What do we really need to do to live in the good of it? Well, three points then, and here's the first. If we want to walk in the good of this gracious path of life, then number one, we need to worship God exclusively. He needs to be first. He needs to be the main thing. This is what it says in verse three. For you shall have no other gods before me. Very first command. Israel, more than anything else, you shall have no other gods before me. You know, to the ancient world, this would have been a profound and breathtaking command and request on the lives of God's people. Because in the ancient world, everybody had hundreds, if not thousands, of gods that they worshipped. This is what they did. They worship hundreds, if not thousands, of gods. And so the idea that God is asking you to worship Him exclusively would be the first God that had ever, ever asked anybody to do that. Everybody else seemed fine for you to have hundreds of other gods, but not Yahweh. You worship me and me alone. And this would have been a challenge for Israel because they'd been in bondage for 400 years and they had picked up all the habits and traits of Egypt. And so they also had hundreds of other gods that they would have worshipped. 
Philip Ryken in his commentary says it this way. He says, The Egyptians worshipped the gods of fields, rivers, light, darkness, sun, and storm, to name but a few, swearing their allegiance to the gods and goddesses of love and war. They bowed down to worship idols in the form of men and beasts. And the Israelites worshipped these gods too. Over the long centuries of captivity, they had conformed to the Egyptian culture and practice. So in the first commandment, the Lord took his stand against the gods of Egypt and every other false deity, past, present, and future. For this command was without precedent. And so it was. For centuries, people had worshipped hundreds and hundreds of other gods. But now God says, no, you shall have no other gods before me. Israel, if this is going to go well for you, if you are going to walk well on the good of this path of life, I am your father, I'm seeking to help you, I'm seeking to aid you, you shall have no other gods before me. Why? Well, because I care about you. Because all these other gods, they're not real, Israel. They're fakes. They're frauds. They're false gods. They will disappoint you. They will not deliver as you think they will deliver. I don't want to see you pimping yourself out to loads of other gods that quite simply don't exist. Because I love you. I don't want to see you wasting your time. I don't want to see you walking around disappointed because you've believed a fraudster false god. See, my friends, make my mistake. This commandment is not suggesting here that there are, in fact, other gods, and we just need to try and make sure God's at the front of the pile, but it's okay to believe in lots of other gods. That would be the theology of henotheism, the idea that there can be many gods, but then you worship one god more than the others. That's henotheism. But the Bible teaches monotheism, i.e. that there is only one god and only one god that should be worshipped, the one true god, Yahweh. It's what the Apostle Paul picks up on in 1 Corinthians, 4, 1 Corinthians 8, chapter, verses 4 through 8. He says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods, listen, so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He's making it clear there is no God but one. An idol then has no real existence. Why? Because it is worshipping a false God. Someone who doesn't even exist. And so Israel, because I care for you, because I love you, I don't want to see you giving yourself to fraudulent and false gods who will never deliver and will constantly disappoint you. You are wasting your time and I care for you too much to have you do that. So you're to have no other gods before me. You know, one of the reasons why God is doing that is because he is a caring and loving God. But there's also more to it. He also wants to ensure Israel and indeed us don't give ourselves to other gods because God himself, Yahweh, wants a genuine and loving relationship with you. He wants to know you. And he wants your heart. 
And herein, I believe, lies one of the biggest growth points in the Christian life. Understanding you haven't just been drawn out, saved, to go on your way. You've been drawn out to be drawn into a relationship with him. You've been brought forth on eagle's wings to be brought near to God. Why? So that you can have a relationship with him. The one who saved you, the one who gave you grace, the one who broke the bonds of sin and death in your life wants to know you and actually have a personal and distinctive relationship with you. It's when we understand that that these commandments and the thing God's asked us to do go from duty to delight. Because we understand it's an expression of his care towards me. It's a gracious path of life towards me. The God who saved me wants me to do these things not only for his glory, but for my good. And so what a thrill then to obey the Ten Commandments because it's not about duty, it's about delight. It's about God graciously caring for me. For these, they're not just rules. They're about relationship. They're about understanding. He loves me and knows me and knows my frame and knows how it's going to go well for me. And so he graciously gives me these things. See, it's only then that the greatest commandment actually makes sense. Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. See, that isn't primarily a rule. It's about relationship. It's about knowing somebody in a way where you say, I would love to do that because he's my king and he's my Lord. He, he bore me on eagle's wings and he brought me to himself. It's such a privilege to know him. He loves me like no one else ever did in the universe. And then in his grace, he sits down with me and says, Dave, you know what? This is how it's going to go well for you. And so what a privilege to walk in the good of that as I seek to glorify him for his glory and indeed my good. See, make no mistake, God is caring for his people here, but he is also helping them see that he wants a genuine, loving relationship with them. And the best analogy I think we have of this type of relationship that is being described here in the first commandment is marriage. It's the analogy of marriage. See, in marriage, two people come together, forsaking all others, and voluntarily enter into a covenant relationship for life. That's what you do when you get married. You forsake all others and you give yourself in holy matrimony to one another. And in effect, that's what God's telling us to do here. I mean, imagine how poor a marriage would be if the marriage was not built on either or, but built on both and. It would be a really, really strange marriage. Because when you get married, you pick. I'm not going to have them, I'm going to have you. But imagine if you didn't do that, you said, I'm going to have you, and I'm probably going to have quite a few of them as well. It's going to be really weird. So imagine the husband comes home, the wife's sitting at the table, he comes in, and he's got another woman with him. And she's like, who's this? And she's like, well, uh, darling, um, I love you, I'm devoted to you, obviously, I really love you, you're the apple of my eye, but I kind of met her as well, and she's really nice. And I sort of got a bit of affection for her, and so she's going to be moving in. I thought it'd be good, you know, the three of us. And then a week later, he brings home another woman, and another woman again. 
And each and every time he just says to his wife, listen, I love you. Obviously I have, you know, I'm really grateful for you given all that you've done for me, but it's good to have some other women around the place as well. Tell you what that would be. That would be no marriage at all. That would be a slap around the face and you're moving out. That's what type of marriage it would be. It would be really bad. Why? Because in marriage, you forsake all others and give yourself to one another. That's how the marriage relationship works. It is not a relationship of both and. It's a relationship of either or. And what God is helping Israel and us understand is that's the way. If we're going to walk in the good of this path of life, we need to operate towards God. We must have no other gods before Him. We can't have Him and lots of other women that we're worshipping and giving ourselves to. It will not work. It will not work for His glory and it will not work for your good. All these other gods are false gods. They are frauds. And God, for His glory and our good, wants to be first in our hearts. He wants to be the main thing in our lives. He wants to be the one thing we desire more than anything, not only for His glory, but for your good. Because Israel, this is how it will go well for you. If you do not live like this, you will, you will chase false gods. And you know what those false gods will do? They will not deliver. They will disappoint. And you will find yourselves, rather than walking well on this path of life, you will be over the barriers all the time, chasing after other things and wondering why they're not delivering. And then when they don't deliver, have the audacity to look at God and say, why are you letting me down? What an audacious He's not letting us down. We just got distracted and started worshipping other things. So right up front, God sits us down and he says, listen, if this is going to go well, if you're going to walk in the good of this gracious pathway to life, then you need to worship me exclusively. And then number two, if we're going to walk in the good of this gracious path of life, then we need to shun all idolatry. We need to shun it. That's what the second commandment is all about. Look with me at verse 4 through to the first half of 5. He says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. What is on view here then in this commandment is the issue of idolatry, having an idol. And I want to make it very clear right from the start, idols are not just made by the hands, okay? Sometimes idols are made by hands. That's what you're talking about very directly here. Things that people would carve, things that people would make, and they start to serve them and bow down to them. But as the Scriptures try to help us see all the way through to the New Testament, all idols aren't just carvings and statues, Because some idols are made by hands. Some idols are made by our hearts. See, as John Calvin once said, our hearts, all of our hearts are idol factories. And right here then in the Ten Commandments, as God is helping us see, listen, Israel, I love you. I want to see this go well for you. You're to have no other gods before me and you need to shun all idols. Any idols made by hands, any idols made by your hearts, You must not serve them and not bow down to them because it will never go well for you if you 
do. See, the Israelite idolatry was really easy to see. And if you've ever seen the Ten Commandments, you're like, oh, it's really not complicated. They're building a golden calf. They're building statues. They're building ornaments and they're bowing down to them. And you think, yeah, well, I don't do that. So I don't break this commandment. No problem at all. Anybody ever done that? Anybody ever said in your house, oh, mom, this is just amazing. The second commandment, I don't do it. Big win. Well, maybe you do. Because in all reality, idols aren't just made by our hands. They're made by our hearts. And so in all honesty, my friends, I submit to you that we are no less vulnerable to idols than the Israelites were. Our tendency and temptation to idolatry is no less prevalent today than theirs. It just looks different. It's more subtle. And yet it is a modern form of exactly the same thing that they are dealing with. They made them with their hands. We make them with our hearts. Tim Keller then, in his wonderful book, Counterfeit Gods, that I would wonderfully recommend on this issue, he says this when trying to discern what an idol really is, the idols that we're to ensure that we run away from. He says, an idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if only I have that, then I'll feel like my life has meaning and then I'll know I have worth. An idol is anything, is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if only I have that, then I'll be good to go. I'll have meaning and I'll have worth. And in all honesty, my friends, for all of us then, I think we are all vulnerable and have a temptation and tendency in our hearts to those types of idols. Things that we honestly think in our heart of hearts, but if I only have that, I mean, yes, I want God, but if I have God plus plus this, if I have this, then I'll have value and I'll have worth and I'll be good to go. Sovereign Grace, I submit to you, our hearts are all vulnerable and prone to those types of idols. Here's just a sampling of idols then that I think we can be tempted to. The idol of achievement, for example. I said, God, I want you, I love you, and I'm worshipping you, but if only I had an achievement, if only I had something that I could do, something that I could bring to the church or the world then my life would have value and meaning. There'd be something to live for. And so God, you're a good guy, but it ain't enough. It's an idol. Something that we're either replacing God with or minimally standing alongside God because our moods go up and down depending on how well we feel our achievements going. There's the idol of comfort. Think an idol of comfort that we can all feel to different degrees. So none of us in the room would probably say, hey, I want to be the richest person in Sydney. None of us are going to say that. But it's so easy in our lives to say, God, I love you, I, I want you, but I need stuff. I need to actually own a home. And if you were kind to me, you would help me own our home. And because you're not being kind to me, I'm having to work like 100 hours a week to own a home. And why are we working 100 hours a week? Because that comfort has become an idol. It's not become something now as an option that we need. It's become something that I must have. Why must I have it? 
Well, because then I'll have value. I'll have worth. Actually, if God dies, I'll still be good because I'll own my home. It's become an idol. It's become something that we're bowing down to and worship, willing to give up so many things because I need that. There's the idol of family. And so sometimes when we don't have family, we dream about how good it would be to have a spouse and have children and think wrongly that, but if I only had that, I would have value and worth. And then you get a family and you get married and you have kids. And they are a gift from the Lord, and yet it is so easy, so easy in our culture to start to find God is no longer at the center of our lives. He's over here. And what is at the center of our lives is our family. Happy family, happy life. So the center of my world now is my family. I'm not willing to do anything that would upset my family. I don't want to move any of my family anywhere that might cause them difficulty. Why? Because they become an idol. They become something that we need to bow down to and worship instead of God. So as long as the kids are happy, I'm happy. Even if that contravenes something in the Bible. Oh well, at least they're happy. It's an idol. The idol of approval. So God, I want you. I just don't want to be unpopular. So Lord, I want you. But please do not send any persecution my way because I'm not going to cope. Why? Well, because I've idolized approval. I want to be liked by everybody. And if I'm not liked by everybody, I wonder how I'm going to have meaning and worth in my life. I wonder how my life's going to go on. Then there's the idol of work and study. That we think as long as I can achieve something in my work or achieve something in my study, then my life will have value and worth and meaning. So I just need to get there and then when I get there, I'll be able to do something different and worship God. If you are ever, ever, ever tempted to say that, I just need to give myself to this at the moment and then I'll return to God. Hello, idol o'clock here, you know, that's what it is. Because what we're saying, although we wrap it up in nice Christian language, is I want to worship this right now so that I can worship God. No, God says, no. Why? Because you think you will worship this and then come back to me. No, you will worship this and then off you will go. And you won't even realize you're doing it. This is God's protection to us. And then there is the idol of blank. Probably the very thing that the Holy Spirit has been putting his finger on as I've been looking at this and talking about these very things. The very thing that you are tempted to think, I want God plus this so that my life will have value and meaning and worth and be worth living. My friends, they're idols. And as God sits us down, he says, you shall have no idols. And then graciously, from the second half of verse 5 through to verse 6, he starts to explain why it's so important that we don't have idols. This astounded me this week because, quite frankly, I look at this and think, God, you didn't even need to do that. You could have just said it and we're good to go. You saved us on eagle's wings. You bore us to yourself. We get it. Look, I'm going to bow the knee. I'm in. 
But no, God graciously, as a father and friend and redeemer, sits us down and says, no, I want to explain to you again why it's so important you don't have idols. Why it's so important you don't have any other gods before me. And this is what he says, verse 5b. He says, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast steadfast but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Why is it so important that we have no other gods before him? Why is it so important that we have no idols? Well, number one, because he is a jealous God. When you hear about God's jealousy in the Bible, it's not talking about the green-eyed monster that we can struggle with at different times when we're jealous of other people. God is not jealous of other people. He's jealous for His own glory. He's first and foremost for Himself. And His jealousy then is a function of His love. He knows, Israel, if you start to pimp yourselves out to other things, to false gods, to false idols, they are going to hurt you. They are going to destroy you. They're going to distract you from me. They're going to pull you over the side of life. I don't want that for you. And so I'm jealous that you give me your attention. Why? Because I'm the best thing that ever happened to you. If we said that, it would be profoundly arrogant. But for God to say that, He has to say it because to push us anywhere else would be idolatry. Whereas God says, no, I'm your answer. I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. Look to me. I need to be first in your heart. The apple of your eye. For I am a jealous God. And the second reason that he gives us to making sure we're obeying this command is because our choices have very real consequences. See, in verse 5, you'll notice there that there is a warning that where God makes it clear that he will visit the iniquity of the fathers on their children. Well, that is a warning that is repeated elsewhere in the Old Testament. It's in Exodus chapter 34. It's in Numbers 14. To Jeremiah 32, and it is a warning, quite frankly, that is so often misunderstood and confused and massacred by so many people. It does not mean what most people think it means. Okay, this is not to do with generational curses or hexes or demonic oppression that somehow passed down through the generations. No, Jesus was cursed for us on the cross. That was broken, done. Likewise, it does not mean that righteous children will somehow be punished unfairly because of the sins of their fathers. Is that, is that not ever struck you as strange? Would that not be quite cruel? So you can have a good child and a good grandchild, but because the father messed up, well, you're going to get punished and you're going to get punished. Is that what it means? No! Of course it doesn't mean that! Ezekiel actually takes that on himself. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, he, he realized that some people were reading it like that. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20, he says, The soul that sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. For the righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. You get it? The righteous, they get what they get. The unrighteous, they get what 
they get. The father, the father showing the iniquity to the third or fourth generation does not mean if your granddad screws up, you've had it. Unlucky kid, it's just the way it is. No. What God is pointing out to us right here is, listen, your choices have very real consequences. And so whatever generation you're in, whether you be the grandfather or the son or the grandson or the great-grandson, and the way you live your life, it has very, very real consequences. If you walk in hatred to the Lord and iniquity to the Lord, then the consequence of your sin will be punishment. Even if you know Him as Lord and Savior, then if you start to reject Him and you start to go over the edge of the path of life, He will, he will discipline you. He will come after you and discipline you. But if you love Him, and bow the knee to him and obey his commandments. It says there that he will show his steadfast love to a thousand. You know, that doesn't literally mean a thousand people. It means a thousand generations. So if you see the way it works, iniquity, third and fourth generation. Steadfast love, a thousand generations. Get the point? God's saying, listen, this is the if of opportunity here, church. This is the if of opportunity for Israel, the if of opportunity for you. Don't choose darkness, choose life. Choose life. So have no other gods before me and shun all idolatry. If you want to walk in the good of the gracious pathway of life that I've given you, that's what you need to do. You know, it may be me, but as I was studying this week, I realized this is going to be really hard. Because my heart, like everybody else's, is an idol factory. There are many things that grow from within that start to compete for my affections, compete for my desires, compete for my identity. So what's our hope? Well, that brings us to the third point. If we are going to walk in the good of this gracious pathway of life, then number three, we need to turn to Christ uniquely. See, my friends, all of our hearts are prone to wonder. All of our hearts, we still struggle with indwelling sin. We still struggle with the reality of the world. The world tries to shine before us and attract us to itself. And you may be thinking that this is just going to be so hard to actually obey this. I'm never going to manage walking on this gracious pathway of life. It looks so amazing, but I don't think I'm going to be able to do it. Well, church, to be clear, it's not just hard. It's impossible. In and of yourself, you will simply not do this. It was not going to be possible. But you and I have a hope, a wonderful hope, and His name is Jesus. My friends, our King, our Saviour, our Redeemer, He has come. And that's why we have a hope. My friends, there's only one person who has ever, ever lived, who has actually kept the law in its fullness. And His name is Jesus. And it's only because of Him that by His grace and for His glory, we get to gather here today as His church and as a people who've been redeemed and forgiven and adopted and know that heaven is your home. It has only been possible through Him. Matthew 5 verse 17, 
Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Thank you, Jesus, that he came to do that. He came to fulfill them. For God's righteous demands is that we had to walk in the good of these things, but we never did it. We blew it. None of us in the room worshipped the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our strength and all our being. None of us have ever loved our neighbour as ourselves. None of us. And then Jesus came. And he fulfilled every aspect of the law, not just literally, but in spirit as well. Each and every aspect of what it means to have a relationship with God, he did it all. And that's why 2,000 years ago, he went to the cross as our ransom bearer. He was the only spotless lamb that could have ever, ever represented us. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. Why? So that we could be reconciled to God. And that's where the great exchange took place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that anybody who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. Well, how does that happen? Because I've sinned. I've fallen so far short. Well, it happens because when we put our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, we get to take off the filth that is the clothing that we wear all the time. And Jesus says, I'll take that. I'll take that for you. And its consequences. And here, here's my righteous robe that I earned by completely fulfilling the law. And I'm going to put it around you. When the Father now sees you, he will see you through, the, through my righteousness. He will three, see you having fulfilled the law in entirety. And it will be that that will be the grounds of your forgiveness and adoption and redemption and that heaven is your home. The robe of righteousness is on you. Church, the robe of righteousness is on you. Our only hope of salvation was Jesus. But in addition to that, for all those that know him as Lord and Savior, if your desire is to walk on this gracious path of life and walk in the good of it, he is our only glorious hope in making that a reality as well. And he can do it. For in and of ourselves, we've got no hope of walking along this path. But as God tells us himself, we can do all things. All things through him who strengthens us. Is that not good news? You have got no hope of walking on this path by yourself. But you can do all things through him who strengthens you. Jesus Christ himself, John 14, says, it's better for you that I go. The disciples are wondering, it is not better for us that you go. Stay. And he says, no, it's better for you that I go. Because if I go, I can send the Spirit, one just like me, a helper. And through the Spirit, both myself and the Father will reside in you. What is he doing there? Well, one of the things he is doing is he is giving grace and strength to walk on this gracious path of life. We can't do it in and of ourselves. But through Christ who strengthens us, we can do all things. My friends, this gracious path to life, then, make no mistake, it is a dependent path. You weren't designed to now walk it by yourself. Go ahead, give it a go. No, it's not going to work. 
You walk on it crying out to God for grace. Like Eric Liddell when he ran. The British guy that ran and he ran and will win in the Olympics and he just kept running, looking up. And they said, why do you keep looking up? Well, I look up because it's God who strengthens me. That's how this path is designed. God help me. I want to walk in the good of this path. And he says, I want you to too. And so I'm going to help you. I'm going to aid you. You shall have no other gods before me and you shall shun all idols. For my glory and by my grace and for your good. So sovereign grace, would this be our story? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the way you communicate to us. You are so gracious and so kind. Lord, you are the God who dwells in inapproachable light. You are the God of the mountain that was smoking with lightning and flames. And yet you hold out your hand to us as the gracious Father that you really are. And you call us to trust you, to love you, to know you. Lord, I do thank you then for your kindness. And I thank you that the entirety of this tone is one of trying to help us. So Lord, would we heed your words? Would we listen to your words and would we recognize afresh today that all we need is you? You need to be first in our hearts. You need to be our one true desire for our good. So Lord, do you forgive us for times where we're getting distracted, when we're pulled over the edge into the sideways of the path to peer over the fence? And would you help us, Lord, to refocus our eyes on you today? Would you be first in our hearts? And would all glory go to you. Amen.